You're listening to the Mill Sunday School Podcast. Everybody, this is Jordan Haley. He's a, a graduate of ORU, got his master's degree, and he's really smart, and he's going to talk to us about Jesus. So it's like the perfect day. Jordan Haley, everybody. Thank you, Joe. Well, it is, I won't lie, it's, it's great to be here on a day that is leading up to Christmas to talk about, talk about Jesus uh, days before we celebrate his birth. So, Joe, I greatly appreciate the opportunity to do this. Um, as Joe briefly said, the first week he covered the historical Jesus, that Jesus actually lived, breathed, and walked on this earth. And kind of covered a lot of different things on that. And the second week he talked about how about the incarnation, how, God, how Jesus is fully God and fully human. And kind of covered and went through that, used some different creeds to talk about that, and used different scriptures to talk about that. So if you miss those lessons, I highly encourage you to podcast those and listen to them. Because I am going to continue on uh, into another area that will help us to understand Jesus more and also help us to understand what he did and said. Um, today there's a couple... There's two main points I want to make, uh, two ways of looking at things, maybe two perspectives, you could say. Um, the first one is the importance of understanding Jesus within a Jewish culture, understanding Jesus, placing Jesus in the context of the first century and what was going on during that time. Because I don't know about you guys, but I've learned how important it is to understand the context of a conversation, the context of words and hand gestures. Um, I've been able to do some different uh, mission work, travel overseas, and I've I found myself resulting to hand gestures. When I, I don't speak the same language, I'll start using uh, hand gestures. I think they're universal. I think, oh, everyone knows what this means, or everyone knows what this is. When I come back to the States, I realize how much I use the hand gestures because I kind of continue to use them. Next year I see a good friend, I give him a thumbs up. I'm like, I never give anybody a thumbs up, but I'm giving everybody thumbs ups right now. And I, I realize that this is not always a good hand gesture. This one finger can mean a different finger somewhere else. I was actually in Australia... And uh, we, one day we were in a park and we were playing rugby with some kids and stuff. And then like next day we're, we're driving by and they're out there playing again. And I gave them the thumbs up to like kind of say what's up. Hey, how you doing? And I was quickly reminded that uh, that wasn't appropriate. And so, <laughs> I mean, that's just one of many, many hand gestures that aren't quite appropriate. You have, you have the peace sign. Um, and some cultures... Remove the index finger, and it means the same thing. Uh, my wife and I were uh, actually looking at someone's post. Uh, a friend of ours is in uh, Ireland right now. And she's like, I realize you don't give the cab driver a peace sign. It's basically flipping them off. And so understanding hand gestures, communication, Words, conversations, actions within the culture is vital. Because I could say, no, this, this means peace. And they're like, no, it doesn't. No, it does. But I, if I'm in Ireland, I need to realize what this hand gesture means. 
And so I'm not trying to give you guys any hand gesture. I, I mean it in the American way right now, just so you know. And so I think it's important if you look at Jesus, when you, you look at the sayings, you look at his actions, you look, you look at his interaction with people, you have to understand the context that he was in. He was living in the first century. He's living in the first century, living in Israel. Uh, the Jewish culture was still in Israel, but yet they were still in exile because the Romans were in control of them. So you have this first century situation where Jews are still worshiping in the temple. They're still in their holy, holy land, but yet at the same time, the Romans are in control. So I think with that in the back of our minds, we need to remember that. The second point, which I'll tie in our first point with the second point as we kind of continue on, is it is important to fit Jesus in the grand narrative. I mean the grand narrative is the entire Bible, from the beginning to end, we have to understand how Jesus fits within that. A lot of times we, we realize, oh, Jesus was the beginning of the church. But we must realize, yes, Jesus was the beginning of the church, but Jesus was a culmination of Israel's story. Jesus is a culmination of God's redemptive plan. So if you, if you leave out everything in the beginning, you're leaving out a big portion of the story. A big portion of the story that gives a lot of meaning to what Jesus did, how he acted, and the point of him coming. So I think we all understand uh, when we watch a movie, I don't know about you guys, but I love, love, love movies that build as time goes on. There's suspense, and there's, there's a turn of events, and you're like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen now? There's a villain is introduced, and you're like, oh, and you realize maybe that guy's not as bad as that guy, or, and it kind of builds up, and there's just this, this climactic moment, all of a sudden, it's like, all comes together, and you're just like, oh my gosh, you're on your edge of your seat, and you're just kind of wowed by it. But if, if you started the movie at that moment, where the entire movie comes to that culmination, it's not going to mean the same. And so I have a video clip that I would like to play for you guys. That's a scene towards the end of the third film, and I quite just ruined the whole series for you. So, no, the point I want to make, and I, 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 lo- I really enjoy Tolkien's books that turned into movies, and this story of Lord of the Rings. It's three films if you've watched the movie. It's a good nine, nine and a half hours of movie to watch. And there's about eight hours of movie that leads up to this moment. And for you that have seen this film, like you can jump into the scene and be like, oh man, and remember the last time you watched it. And you start having flashbacks of everything they went through to get up to that point to destroy the ring. And you have, you have so much more behind this scene. If this is the first time you've ever seen this scene, you're kind of like, okay, the ring seemed bad. They dis- the ring was destroyed. Frodo didn't die. That's cool. It, it doesn't have the same punchline to it. And so I'm not trying to compare this film and Jesus' life together. What I'm trying to compare is the importance of understanding the backstory, the importance of ha- understanding everything that came before to really understand the significance, to get the, the full meaning, the full thrill out of the culmination, the climactic moment in a story. And so we're going to talk about the time leading up to Jesus. We're going to talk about the first eight hours of the film. 
so to speak, as if we're going to talk about Lord of the Rings. And so, N.T. Wright is a New Testament theologian that I really enjoy reading. He actually wrote this book right now, and some of the stuff I talk about today came from this. And one thing he talks about, he talks about a five-act, five acts of the grand narrative. And so the entire Bible is a grand narrative, a, a big story that's taking place, and there's five different acts within it. Some people will even give a sixth act. Um, if you're interested in a little more in-depth than what I go into on the acts, uh, Glenn Packiam actually did a really cool lesson on the acts uh, in adult Sunday school. It was the first lesson of the adult Sunday school this past fall. So you can look that up too to give you another resource to look at. But the first act, of course, is creation, which is pretty sweet because we just came off this topic from last month. Now, we're not going to dive into this. Uh, I think we had a great time last month kind of dissecting our different views and thoughts on creation, whether it's six-day literal, whether it wasn't, and so forth. But I think that the, the main important thing is that we understand that God created the heavens and earth, that God created humanity, and that he said it was good. That God initiated his interaction with us. That God is interested in our lives and being a part of our lives. And so that is one thing I think we all can agree when it comes to the creation story. Next, quickly moving on, we move over to the fall of humanity. And Genesis chapter 3 is is where you find Adam and Eve eating of the fruit and the rebellion of humanity takes place. And so we have Genesis 3, rebellion of humanity. Not only do we need to pay attention to fall in the sense of when humanity rebelled, we also need to take a couple other looks at two other chapters. In chapter 4 is where Cain kills Abel. And so you have this progression from the rebellion, humanity's rebellion from God, and then into a brotherly fight that leads to death, and then it leads all the way up to... I'll make sure I write down that right. Yeah. Genesis chapter 11 is a Tower of Babel story, or Babel, however you prefer to say it. This is significant also because in this chapter, you have humanity uniting together for their own purpose. Not for the purpose of God, but to glorify themselves. And that is a story, and that is what's taking place in here. So you can see how it escalates from a rebellion from God, two brothers fighting, one killing the other, and to an entire society uniting together to glorify themselves and not God. And we actually will return back to the significance of what takes place th- in this chapter in relation to Jesus himself. And so, we have the fall, we have humanity that has found themselves distanced from God. We have the tragedy in the story that has taken place. And then that moves us into the third act, Israel. Israel. The beginning of Israel takes place in Genesis chapter 12, which is pretty cool. Because God initiates his interaction with Israel, with Abraham. Which is pretty cool because Genesis 11, society, 
unite for itself. God disperses them, scatters them, and right into Genesis chapter 12, we have God calling out to Abraham and saying, I want to trust in me, leave your land, and through your family, I will bless all families. And so it's, it's really neat to see how instantly God has started his redemptive plan for humanity. You know, Jesus wasn't an afterthought. Jesus wasn't something that came about. So all of a sudden, like, oh, he's going to rescue us. It's, it's God fulfilling this call to Abraham. And that's what's taking place when Jesus is born. The beginning of God finishing his promise here. And even going on into Genesis, it's Genesis chapter 15. Um, God counts Abraham as being righteous. And then it's not till Genesis 17 that talks about circumcision. So I think it's really important too to see that God calls Abraham, accounts him as being righteous because of his faith in God. And then as a sign of his faith and a sign of the covenant that they have made, he is circumcised in response to what's already taken place, which is pretty important. And kind of moving down through Israel's history, I'm kind of just going to hit some different little key points that will kind of tie together in the end with Jesus. We're going to jump all the way forward to the Exodus. Um, beginning of Exodus, Moses is called to free God's people. God comes to Moses and says, free my people. So, Israel is already God's people. And in Exodus, it's chapter 15, is when he delivers them out of the hands of Egypt, and they are on their journey. And then a couple chapters later, you find Israel at Mount Sinai, where God gives them the law. The reason we're laying this out on timelines is because seeing the significance of the way things unfold. Just as Abraham was counted righteous and then received circumcision, then Israel was delivered from Egypt, and then they received the law. So the law wasn't how Israel became God's people. It was how Israel was to be God's people. There's a big difference in those two views. And so some people think, oh, Judaism was a, it was a religion of, of law, it was a religion of works. They had to do this, this, and this to be God's people. That is not true. Israel responded and obeyed God because they were God's people. They already were. And so jumping ahead from there, we can jump all the way forward to King David. Uh, the significance with King David is he established the capital of Israel in Jerusalem. And then his son Solomon was the one who actually built the temple. And the temple is important within Judaism. It is, it is like a it's like the center focus of the religion, politically and religiously. Uh, within the temple, it is God's dwelling place. That is believed where God dwells. It's where the sacrificial system takes place, where the high priest will slaughter an animal once a year for the sins of Israel. And so forgiveness of sins takes place through the sacrifice that happens at the temple. And it's also, again, the dwelling house of the Lord. So we have this significance where this journey that's taking place from Israel coming out of captive, captivity. They go through the wilderness. They receive the law. Eventually, they come to the promised land. They're living in the promised land. A lot's taking place. Eventually, Jerusalem becomes a capital. Eventually, the temple is built. 
And the law had laid out that they, the law which they received at Mount Sinai lays out the sacrificial system that's taking place in the temple, which it was taking place before the temple was built too. But it, you know, finally the temple was built and it became the main center of focus. They weren't traveling anymore and so forth. And so I think it's, I think it's really important to take a look at those different passages and take a look at that history that is behind all this because you see God interacting with humanity. You see God starting his redemptive plan. You see God reaching out to him, helping them, saying, this is how you are to lead. This is how you remain in covenant with me. Covenant and law are two different things. The law was given so, they could, so it could help them stay within the covenant with God. God. God made a covenant with them to be their people. And he said, here's a law, kind of gives some boundaries, kind of helps you out to stay within being my people. Because if you think about it, the biggest thing that someone could do wrong was turn from God, turn to idols, and dismiss the covenant with God. You see King David. King David was a mighty king. Um, he, had, he had his faults. He did some things that were pretty bad. I'd say murder and adultery are pretty bad. Um, but there's one thing that David never did. He never broke covenant with God. He always worshipped God. He never turned to idols. He never did anything else. And so you, you look at this amazing story that's taking place, this amazing story that is unfolding, and you, you, you see the mistakes that Israel takes place. You see the mistakes that God, God redeems and forgives them for. But the, the one thing that they received major punishment for was when they turned from God, turned to idols, and went a different direction. And then you have the exile. And where they are exiled to a different land because of their adulterous worship. They are punished. They are removed from their holy land. And now you find Israel's story in the 700s through the 500s when Assyrians take control in the 700s of the northern tribes and then the Babylonians take control of Israel. The southern tribes, Judah, takes, des- destroys Jerusalem in the 500s and they are banned to exile. And one thing while they're in exile, you see a lot of prophets talk about repentance and how Israel is to, to repent and turn back to God and come back to him and, 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 and turn away from their old ways and and with that repentance and turning back to God, they receive forgiveness. And a sign that forgiveness is them coming out of exile. And so you have this massive story that I'm trying to summarize in very little time, which is almost probably more confusing, almost probably seems like I'm rambling, and throwing you a lot of facts. But it's going to come to a point where it ties together, I hope. No, I promise, it will. Um, and so we have, we have Israel being brought a promise be made to Abraham, Israel being brought out of Egypt, be given the law, come into the promised land. You see the temple being built. You see good kings. You see bad kings. And you see Israel turn from God to adulterous worship, go into exile. Then you see God return them back to Israel. And then they're in the land of Israel leading up to the time of Jesus. Now, a lot of things take place. There's, there's moments of time where Israel is actually in control of the land, and there's moments they're not. But the time that Jesus comes onto this earth, Roman control is over Israel. So we find ourselves in this scenario that Jesus has come when 
really Israel is in exile. They are they may be in their land, but they are not it's not the same situation as it was before. They are not controlled, they are not Roman authority is, is suppressing them. They they can't freely do everything that they desire to do and so forth. And so we we come to this point where Jesus is born. We come to this point where where God is bringing to completion the redemptive plan that he started with Abraham. We have to realize that Israel became God's people for the purpose of all people. God didn't pick Abraham and then bless his family just to bless his family, but the purpose was to bless all people. So we need to realize, and I think it's so awesome that you see a God that that cares so much about humanity. You see, you see humanity rebel against God. You see humanity turn on the, each other. And then you see humanity unite together for their own purpose against God. But yet then God comes and, comes and makes a promise to Abraham saying, Okay, here we go. I've got I to get humanity back with me. They've been dispersed. You know, I've got to make my presence known. I, got, I, got to, people, I need people to realize who I really am. And he starts that process through Abraham and through his family. And again, it culminates with Jesus Christ. And there's a couple of scriptures I want to point out in the Old Testament. Uh, a couple of prophecies. Not, not your traditional ones you always talk about. A lot of times you talk about the ones in Isaiah. Um, Isaiah has a lot of prophecies that talk about the coming Messiah and so forth. But there's um, a couple in Jeremiah that we'll look at. One in Ezekiel and one in Deuteronomy. In Jeremiah chapter 31, starting verse 31, this is the passage that talks about the new covenant. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. Then jump into Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 38. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever, for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make, I will make with them an everlasting covenant. I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts. And they may not turn from me. Ezekiel 36, chapter, or chapter 36, verse 26. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from flesh and give you a heart of flesh. In Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. And so here, when Jesus is coming on the scene, he is fulfilling the promise of Abraham. But he is fulfilling all these prophecies that are taking place. Jesus is inaugurating a renewal, a new covenant, a, a covenant where, where God is pouring out his spirit on all humanity. Joel chapter 2. How he, he says he will pour out all his, his spirit on all humanity. He's, he's coming to a culmination in a story where he's, he says, I will give you a new heart, a heart of flesh. Now, this is a big deal because Jesus is coming to inaugurate a new thing, a new covenant. Not a, a new thing in the context of, oh, Israel's old, the church is new. 
but a, a freshness. A freshness in the story that's continuing on. It's not, like, it's not a separate story, but it's a c- continuous story that has taken place at this moment. And so you have Jesus coming on the scene. Jesus is healing the sick. He is, the lame are walking. He is, he is delivering people from demons. And he's calling people to follow him. And he's also forgiving people of their sins. He's saying, follow me. He's forgiving people of sins and so forth. Now, within the first century, within Judaism, we've already seen from the backstory that they had a sacrificial system set up. The high priest would slaughter an animal once a year for the sins of Israel. And here Jesus comes on the scene forgiving people of their sins. Not only is he forgiving people of their sins, he's forgiving people of their sins outside the temple system. So you have a, you have a new thing. So you can, you can understand why some of the Jews were kind of getting upset because they're like, whoa, wait a minute. God set forth this, this sacrificial system and here you are forgiving sins outside of the temple now. But this is the thing though. When Jesus came, he, he is turning the eyes on himself. There's passages where Jesus refers to himself as the temple, as a high priest and the sacrifice. So he's like, the entire system sums up in me. Because I am God's son. I am the Messiah that has been prophesied throughout the entire Old Testament. I mean, they, they, they expected the coming Messiah. They did expect one. There's different views on uh, what that coming Messiah would look like. But most of them really, truly believe that the coming Messiah would be someone that would liberate them from Rome. Uh, probably would restore the temple. Um, cleanse the temple. Um, set up God's justice, return them out of exile, kind of the way I referenced, referenced before, that he would conquer Rome, which would mean a return out of exile, which would mean a forgiveness of sins, which would mean a repentance heart that Israel has. And so here, here Jesus comes telling them to repent, but yet he's not overthrowing Rome, so it's a different perspective. He is calling people to repent, to abandon everything and follow him, putting all the focus on him, because the forgiveness of sins that's taking place in him is the forgiveness of sins that is for all eternity. There's no need for the sacrificial system anymore because it all has led up to him. Paul calls the law a tutor. It, 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 it was the Israel's tutor while they're God's people for the point leading up to the climax in Jesus Christ. When he would come and redeem all of humanity. And one thing I think it's really important when we look at Jesus and we realize what he did is not only that to receive personal salvation through Jesus Christ, that, that Jesus Christ came, that our sins are forgiven, no longer is the sacrificial system in need. But, you know, uh, this is good. Ah, our sins are forgiven. The thing that I think is really, really, really neat is going all the way back to Genesis chapter th- 11. Not only does God redeem humanity back to him through Jesus Christ, he also unites humanity. In Genesis chapter 11, humanity united for their own purpose. Jesus comes, unites humanity in his purpose, and now we find our identity in Jesus Christ. That we are in Christ, he is our identity, and he is who we are. Because leading up into the first century, God's people were identified through circumcision, identified through 
the Torah, the law, kosher laws, what they ate, what they did and didn't do. And here Christ comes, unifying all humanity, saying it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Greek, male or female, it doesn't matter who you are, you all are one in Christ. You all carry the identity badge of being God's people, which is Jesus Christ. And I think that's just, it's just fascinating how God, you, God disperses humanity in Genesis 11 and then not only redeems humanity to himself, but reunites humanity. And a great picture of that is Pentecost. Uh, Pentecost is a Jewish holiday. Um, they, it is celebrating the first of the harvest, where they bring the first of the harvest, their first fruits, to the temple. And it is also, also celebrating the law being given on Mount Sinai, which is really interesting. And so here at Pentecost, Jesus pours out his Holy Spirit, fulfills the prophecies, poured out his ho- Holy Spirit on all of humanity, Fulfills the prophecy of giving people a new heart and writing the law on their hearts through the Holy Spirit. And at this moment, you have the, the great story of people speaking in tongues and people understanding each other. Like, how am I understanding this person? How am I understanding that person? And there's, there's a unity that's taking place in that picture where humanity is being unified. They're not, they're not separated by speech anymore as when God dispersed them and gave them different languages. And so here, he brings it all the way back. Unifies them. And also, at the very moment that Israel is celebrating the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, God is pouring out His Holy Spirit on all humanity. At that moment, the prophecies that we just read, let me get back, where He says, I'll give them one heart, one way. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. I will put the law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. These prophecies are taking, are being fulfilled at this moment, at this unifying moment, which is pretty amazing, I think. I don't know. Is it yes, no, maybe? Okay, I'm trying. I'm trying to tie it together for all you guys. It's, it's, it's getting there. And so during this Christmas season, it's easy just to, take time to look at Jesus' life, look at, look at his birth, and just think, oh wow, thank you God for sending your son to save us for our sins. Thank you God for giving us a future. Thank you God for giving us a hope. But what is lost, when we only focus on his birth and so forth, we, we, we lose the caring act that God has the, the interaction God has had with humanity to redeem him back to him. We, we, we lose the amazing story of God pouring out his love with humanity. We, we lose the story of all the promises of God being fulfilled. And so when we, when we understand, to fully understand who Jesus is, to understand the purpose of him coming, to understand what he did and what he said and how he acted, it is, it is vital to make sure we understand the backstory. It is, it is vital to understand the culture he lived in. Uh, one of the stories I think is really neat, that is a description of that, is men and women had very, very separate roles. Um, I think we all know that within Jewish culture. Uh, we have the story of Mary and Martha. You guys know that story? 
Jesus comes to their house. Uh, Martha is, is, is busy trying to host, and Mary sits at the feet of Jesus. And we have this story, and Martha comes in all upset. Jesus, you care that I'm, I'm serving alone. And, and Jesus basically says, no, Mary, Mary's good. Mary's right for being at his feet. A lot of people have looked at that passage and said, wow. You know, sometimes we, got, we can't be so busy. You know, we got we to gotta set our stuff we got to set our work stuff down and just spend time with Jesus. Good message, but missing a lot. The significance of Jesus confirming Mary's position in that room at his feet is crucial. That position is a position that disciples sat at. That is a position that men sat down at and were taught. Jesus has broke a cultural barrier by not only allowing her, but encouraging Mary to sit at his feet and to learn. And it wasn't just the men who learned and the women stay in the kitchen. He broke down a barrier and said, no, sit at my feet. Sit with the rest of my disciples. Sit and learn with me. Which is pretty amazing, I think, is taking place and puts even more meaning behind Galatians chapter 3, which talks about neither Jew nor Greek, neither male nor female. We realize that God came as a culmination of Israel's story to redeem humanity back to him, to unite humanity with themselves for his glory, to develop into the church where no one is left out, no one is seen above another. It's pretty, pretty amazing. And there's a passage I want to read that I think really sums up a lot. It's actually in Ephesians. You know, when you're, you're speaking, it's really good to actually keep your notes together, not just put one to your right and one to your left and so forth. Next thing you know, you're just trying to... His, but, but that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in truth, righteousness, and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of one, each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members, members one another. We ang- be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And so I think this is a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful passage. I love the last verse. It talks about how it's being sealed in the Holy Spirit. But it calls us to live a life after Christ. It calls us to live a life where we put things off and put on Christ. And we come out of this, this back story of Israel. Where God has interacted with humanity. Who had 
started his redemptive plan with Abraham. Delivered his people out of Egypt. Gave them the law to help them stay within communion with him. Gave them the law to help them not walk away from God. And then you have the entire story that we've covered already, briefly, leading up to Jesus and himself, and Jesus coming on the earth saying, your identity is now in me. Come follow me. And this is sealed by the Holy Spirit. And this is amazing, because we have been redeemed by the life of Jesus Christ. We've been sealed by the Holy Spirit, and we've been unified as one body through this. And now we can unite together for God's glory, for his purpose, and sharing his message from now until he comes back. Which is pretty, pretty amazing. And so, the main points I want to get today, and all my rambling that I feel like I've done, and I, I honestly feel like I've been jumping around, is that I want you guys to realize, when you take a look at the scripture, when you take a look at the life of Jesus, when you take a look at the things he's done, that he did, and the things that he said, realize that there is that backstory. Realize that we have a God that has been working from the get-go to redeem us. Realize that Jesus was an afterthought. And realize there's a lot going on at that moment. And really dive into Scripture. Really dive into the Old Testament. Receive the Old Testament as your history. Receive the Old Testament as, as, as not just the Old Testament. I was having a conversation with someone. I go, I hate the word old before the Old Testament and the word new before the New Testament because it gives you this preconceived idea on what they are. Let's talk about the grand narrative of God interacting with humanity, the Bible itself from beginning to end. And let's not say this is old, this is new, but let's, let's, let's view it as God's redemptive plan, God's call to Abraham, God's, God's redemptive plan through Israel prophecies of a, a coming king and messiah that redeem all of humanity and then you have the new testament which is the fulfillment of that prophecy and not try to separate the two as if one's old one's new one's better one's bad one's irrelevant one's relevant no it's one big story one story where god's interacting and that story has come to a culmination in the life the death and the resurrection of jesus christ and so our, our unity our identity is in christ and it's in him. We, we no longer, the people of God no longer have to sacrifice animals in the temple. Of course, there is no temple. Um, kosher laws no longer separate groups of humanity with each other. Now, if there's people out there I know that enjoy, enjoy the kosher laws, enjoy applying the kosher laws to their life, they feel like that is a benefit to the devotion of life. I'm not, that is not wrong, that is not bad, but no longer is that a requirement because that was a requirement for Israel leading up to Christ. That was a requirement to separate them from the rest of humanity so the Savior could come to redeem all humanity back to one. So there's nothing that separates us or dis- makes us distinct from one another except the fact that we are all one in Christ and no one's better than the other. Just because you do this or that doesn't make you better than the other person in God's eyes. And so, that is what I have to say to you guys today. Going into the Christmas season, as you're celebrating Jesus' birth, take note how he is the culmination of God's redemptive plan 
through Israel. Thank you very much. Dude, that was sick. As in good. Let's, uh, let's close in prayer, and then you guys will be dismissed. God, we do thank you for this message. We thank you that you sent your son, Jesus. You came down yourself to fulfill the story of the Old Testament, to fill your plan of redemption for your people. And God, we're so glad to be a part of your people, to be in your kingdom, to be called your own. So God, we praise you. We, we go into a Christmas season expecting you to do great things because you're a great and awesome God. We love you and praise you, Jesus. And everybody said, amen. All right, everybody, you're dismissed. I, we won't see you next week, day after Christmas, but we will see you January 2nd, the week after. Go in peace. Peace out.